It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his newsmaking interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Trunk and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk podcast. New every Thursday, podcastone.com. And of course, Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for downloading, streaming, listening to it, being a part of it, checking it out, subscribing, whatever the hell you do with this podcast. Thank you for doing it. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. So here I am and, uh, we got a couple shows here in a row this week and next week that are going to pay tribute to the late great drummer of Rush, Neil Peart. And yes, that is how you properly say his last name. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people continue to mispronounce his last name even in the weeks since we've lost him. His name is and was properly pronounced Neil Peart. And we will pay tribute to Neil still being memorialized, still the loss of of him uh, to the world of music is still being processed by a lot of people. It is still hard to believe. And he obviously was one of the most loved figures of one of the most loved bands really in the history of rock music. So as you know, the interviews that I bring to you here on the Eddie Trunk podcast originate on my SiriusXM show, Trunk Nation, which is on volume channel 106, and heard live every day, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. And, of course, there's a nightly replay, 10 to midnight Eastern, and the shows are on demand on the SiriusXM app. As I tell you guys all the time, if you're in the U.S. and Canada and you enjoy this podcast, you are only getting a tiny sample of what I do on a daily basis content-wise, interview-wise, commentary-wise, on volume every single day, Monday through Friday, on SiriusXM. So what you're about to hear aired a couple weeks ago, right after the news of Neil's passing was revealed. I put together a tribute show that took up my entire radio show that day, which is 
a, a two-hour show live, and there were four key interviews in that show. I, I, you know, needless to say, when Neil passed away, there were a ton of people that reached out to me, and I appreciate that, about coming on the air to talk about and celebrate and memorialize Neil Peart. But my goal was to try to get some people with some interesting different perspectives because he was such a reclusive guy. So to that end, I wanted to get people who truly knew him and could maybe provide some insights or stories we wouldn't normally get. Because let's be honest, you could throw a stone and find a drummer to talk about how much they love Neil Peart and his drumming and what it meant to them. So my goal was to get a little bit deeper in people who had real inside true knowledge and history with Neil Peart. And I accomplished that by reaching out to a variety of people. The show included Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters, who obviously was enormously influenced by Neil and and loved him and met him and in a major, major band. Producer Nick Raskulinitz, who to this day now stands as the guy who produced the last two ever Rush out albums, Snakes and Arrows and Clockwork Angels. So Nick was very close with Neil and was the last man to record him for Rush, so I wanted to get his perspective. Also, Mike Portnoy, who actually knew Neil Peart, knew what was going on, and is often looked at as almost his successor in some ways. And finally, Andy Curran. Andy, maybe not a household name to many of you guys, but Andy Curran has worked for Rush and the Rush organization for nearly 20 years and still does. He's a musician in his own right, having played in a band called Coney Hatch. And I wanted to get Andy on as well to get some insights from the Rush organization. So that is the show that I put together as a tribute to Neil Peart. And that show did air a couple weeks ago. Here on the podcast, I'm going to bring you two of those interviews this week and two next week. So for two weeks, we will celebrate and remember Neil Peart and share those interviews with you. This week, I'm going to give you first Taylor Hawkins and follow that with Nick Raskulinitz. You will see that even though those interviews did not air originally in that order when the show was live, there is a common bond between those two guys because Nick was actually the guy who introduced Neil to Taylor. Nick produced the Foo Fighters as well, so there's a a bit of a a lineage there. So we are going to do this week first Taylor Hawkins, then Nick Raskulinitz remembering Neil Peart. Taylor more from a fan influence side, Nick from a guy who has actually produced and worked with him. And then next week, I'll give you Mike Portnoy's interview and Andy Curran's interview, of course, from the Rush management label side of things. So we continue to celebrate and remember the greatness that was Neil Peart. And on the next two podcasts today and next week, I'll bring you interviews about Neil from these guests. That's what's going on, and we'll get to our interviews in just a second here on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. Let me also tell you about Keeps. Two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35. The good news with today's advancements in science, Keeps offers proven treatments that can combat the symptoms of hair loss and help you keep the hair you have at half the cost of your local pharmacy. You don't have to go broke, folks. 
You don't have to go bald either. Just go and check out Keeps. They offer generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. Maybe you guys have tried them before. Probably never at this price. Plus, Keeps now offers a prescription shampoo to keep your scalp healthy too. Prevention, it's the key. You don't want to wait too long. Keeps has revolutionized the way men are treated for hair loss. So you don't have to worry about going to the doctor's office and all that sort of stuff. Keeps is is just awesome. Now you can visit a doctor online and get your hair loss medication delivered to your home. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors, and nearly 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just 10 bucks a month, plus for a limited time, you can get your first months free. That's one hell of a deal for getting to keep your hair. So make sure you guys... Make sure that you check out Keeps. It is absolutely a product. If you're dealing with hair loss, you want to get out and you want to get in front of it. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash trunk. That's T-R-U-N-K. To receive your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash trunk. Keeps.com, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash trunk. Do not miss out on this opportunity. Your first month free. Get on it. Use Keeps. Okay, so you know the deal. Connect with me on social media at Eddie Trunk. Twitter, Instagram, Twitter where I'm most active, fan page on Facebook. EddieTrunk.com is the official online home. This uh, this coming Sunday, I'm in Thornburg, Virginia, hosting a show with Firehouse and other guests. And you can see all the information on my appearances on the homepage of the website. Monsters of Rock Cruise coming up. A lot of good stuff going up. I just came back from L.A. where I did the NAM show and so many other things. Again, I hope you're listening to the radio show every day if you're in the U.S. or Canada because you're really getting a fraction of what I'm covering and what's going on here on the podcast. So, for everybody who uh, listens to the radio show, you know the drill. For those outside of the U.S. and Canada who can't hear it, you're going to get a little taste right now of a Neil Peart tribute part two with two other guests will be next week. We'll get into that right after this on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. From A&E, the creators of Cold Case Files, comes your next true crime podcast obsessions. PD Stories. Every week, law enforcement professionals join host Tom Morris Jr. from America's Most Wanted and Live PD to share their experiences, insights, and perspectives on policing. And you're not going to want to miss this show. Be sure to subscribe on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and many other podcast apps so you can get new episodes every single week. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. It's Eddie Trunk on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And right now, let's get to our first interview, Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters, talking about and remembering Neil Peart on this special tribute to Neil Peart. Coming up soon after Taylor, uh, we will talk to producer Nick Raskin. It's the last person to produce Rush's music. That's coming up, but here's Taylor. How are you, buddy? Hey, man. With heavy heart. 
Indeed. Sad, sad, sad heavy heart. Um, how you doing, buddy? Good, man. It's just been a weird weekend. You know, it's been a rough weekend for all of us who are fans of, of the band and rock music in general. When, when did you first hear the news, Taylor? Were, were you... I mean, well, let's go back a little bit. Were you in touch with Neil? Like, were you close with him? I mean, he was a super private guy, but he lived in L.A. Did, did you guys talk and hang much? We did a little bit, but um, not that much. I mean, you know, after he got done doing... I, I went and hung out with him a couple times, down or once down at his... He had a place in Santa Monica where he kept all of his cool old cars, and I went down and had lunch with him one day, and... You know, he was a he was a pretty private dude. Um and and he came over to my house once for a barbecue actually. <laughs> and you know, he he was there to be with his his daughter, you know, and he wasn't there to be the drummer of Rush, that's for sure. And I kind of told all my friends like, dude, don't bug him. <laughs> right. Just let him enjoy the barbecue. One guy went up to him and started talking to him a little bit about Rush and Neil was like, "Hey, today I'm just my daughter's dad." You know, he was, he, you know, as you knew, and as you could tell from those lyrics, he wasn't really that comfortable being, I don't know, like a rock star or anything like that. You know, I think he, he definitely felt more at, you know, he felt comfortable behind his drum kit always until it didn't anymore, obviously. But um, he's, he, you know, he's a private guy. So I knew him kind of, but I, I never got to know him that well, you know, um, but, but the talks we did have were good and I had some good times with him and me and Chad Smith and him hung out backstage at a rush show once. And that was, that was special, you know, well, you know, those guys like that, you look at guys like they're like your heroes. So they're kind of like, you know, they're kind of like superheroes to you as well. So, I mean, I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of times and, and actually, and and get to know Getty and Alex a little bit as well. Well, you know, I, I met Neil and interviewed him one time in 06 for TV. And it's interesting what you say because it's it's something I'll never forget. I spent the whole afternoon with him. And it was the only time I met him. I've done tons with Getty and Alex. It was the only time I, I – and to this day, like for the last 14 years since that interview, Rush fans were like, You're, you got Neil one-on-one. That's crazy. And it was really was crazy. But the funny thing is, which ties into what you're saying, is I'll never forget on the set that day and wherever we were – as long as you just hung out and and talked like we're talking, like two regular dudes talking, he was fine. Whenever somebody would come up and be like in total geek mode, like freaking out, like, oh, my God, yeah, that's like, when he, he got like real that. insular and you could feel he was uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, he didn't like that. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about like from ta- Taylor. I mean, talk about from the playing standpoint for you. When did you? What was your first Rush record? When did you first hear him? And talk about the the impact he had on you as a player. Well, I mean, like I started playing drums when I was ten, and Roger Taylor, as you know, was one of my first big giant influences, and um, and then my brother turned me on to Stuart Copeland. You know, I grew up down in Orange County, Southern California, so. They weren't really listening to hard rock that much. It was really a lot of new wave and stuff. So the police were okay, but I wouldn't get to be listening to Van Halen records down there. People would call you a husher. <laughs> Funny enough. So Rush kind of came a little bit later. So I discovered Stewart and Roger, and then I was really into U2, early U2, Larry Mullen. And then I would say around the age of, I don't know, when you're in sixth or seventh grade, 
we had this guy who was our, you know, like our church. Uh, we had a band and the, and the church camp and the, and this guy, this older guy that ran the church band or whatever. We weren't like a cushion man, but we, but he, we got to play there at the church. We practiced there sometimes. And he turned us on to Rush. He was really cool by that point. So he was really into, you know, lips like sugar, all that kind of stuff. So he, but, but he still had his Rush thing and he turned us on to Rush. And I, the first record I really, really, the record that is my favorite Rush record and will always be in the one I stole the most licks off of, no question, is um, Exit Stage Left. Mm. And, you know, to the casual Rush listener, if you ever want to know <laughs> some of his finest, I think some of his finest drumming is on that record. It's just unbelievable. And and I would sit down and buy the, and when I finally did, when I was, I don't know, a freshman in high school, and I really kind of getting my hand, my head around Rush and, all, and that other world of this, crazy drumming um i i remember at night sitting there with listening to exit stage left on headphones and setting up like three or four pillows and with my drumsticks and like playing the whole you know exit stage left or trying to anyways playing the whole the whole of exit stage left so you know really studied all of those fills and those 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 you know he played drums like an orchestra pit <laughs> You know, he didn't play like a timekeeper necessarily. I mean, he was a good timekeeper, but but he played. I mean, I I know that he came up with with uh, Bruford and Billy Cobham, and you know, those are all influences on Neil. But Neil, I don't know, Neil just did something with it, and Neil played everything like like a symphony. So when he played something. I mean, the way he played it on Exit Stage Left was pretty much the way he played it on the record, but it was live, so there was a little bit more of that good nervous energy that made it even radder. But like, like the live version of Xanadu, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And the YYZ from Exit Stage Left, and that drum solo is the basis of every drum solo I've ever tried to do on stage with the Foo Fighters. And you've seen me do drum solos. I mean, there's no question... 75% of those licks are, are directly from the exit stage left drum solo. No question. Mm. He was, a he was a master at writing a drum solo and he would write a drum solo. He wouldn't just get up there and jam. He would write a drum solo and it was probably the same every night. And that's, that's, that's freaking really hard to do on the drums. It's a lot easier to just go, Hey, I'm going to throw this in here and that there. And I remember as he got older, he started, and he told me like one time, and I've started to add an improvisational uh, <laughs> section to my drum solo. He, I, uh, so that's really fun for me, and um, I can explore other things, you know. Um, he, you know, he was the professor, man. Right. He really was. He, he was like, he actually kind of looked like the professor from Gilligan's Island when he was younger, you know? <laughs> totally. I mean, especially the early stuff when you had the, the handlebar mustache and everything. He was the professor, yeah, for sure. He the, yeah, he was the 70s, like, you know, uh, college professor. And then in the 80s, he was like the 80s, you know, philosophy professor, you know? And, you know, not to mention the guy was writing all these insane lyrics, you know, sometimes very esoteric. But then... Later on, you know, he wrote really, that's another side to Neil, you know, people talk about his drumming so much. 
And, you know, the funny thing about Russia is they, they get a lot, of, as they say in England, they get a lot of stick from some people for being sort of like, you know, whatever, Dungeons and dragons and and sort of goblin-esque. <laughs> you know, they definitely had that side to them that was sort of, you know, boots and boots or whatever. But, I mean, as time went on, I mean, the, the lyrical content on some of the later records and, and the lyrics were very good, really great. I mean, definitely... Um, I don't know, you know, I mean, when, and we listen, and I learned from his lyrics. Like, I, I didn't know really, you know, you know where I learned the most about the Manhattan Project was from the Rush song, the Manhattan Project, mm. off, off the Big Money album, whatever that record was. Uh, Power, Power Windows. Power Windows. And that was the first tour I saw. Oh, my God. Seeing Neil Peart live. Oh, my God. And, you know, when you're a kid, and then, you know, that translates to the garage. So you're in there trying to learn the little strangiato every day. And let me tell you, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody said, some, I saw somebody on social media today said, in light of this news, every every cover band in the world is trying to learn some Rush songs and good luck having their drummer trying to learn how to do it. I don't know. It might have been Morello that tweeted that out today. I thought that was perfect. He's like, there's every tribute band in the world is trying to learn Rush songs right now and good luck good luck to the drummer. <laughs> I saw true. that too. Good luck to the Great. Good luck to the drummer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Hey, let me yeah. ask you, let, I wanted to ask you about that experience of the Hall of Fame because, you know, I watched that video the other day, which I hadn't seen in a little while and there's you and uh nick in the role of getty nick raskin it's the producer who's going to call in today too and then you've got dave over there who was in the role of alex but you're you know you're killing that thing you're you're owning it on 2112 and then you literally have neil peart come up behind you on his own kit while the thing is ending i mean how daunting was that I thought you did a phenomenal job, but to know that they're there watching and about to follow you while you're doing it. Well, you know, it's definitely, uh, you know, the, uh, the instructor, uh, uh, watching the students, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> uh, essentially, you know, that they're, they're like, ha ha, look at them. Try and play 21. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they were, no, they weren't like that. They were super rad and gracious and, um, it was amazing. It's one of those top 10 moments of being in the food fighters that I just go, you know, how did I get, how did I get so lucky to, to have these moments? You know, they're really, they're, that's one of those top 10 special moments, you know, that I'm sorry, boys, I'm doing an interview. Um, uh, you know, that I'll never forget. Yeah. I'll never forget. I will never forget. And, uh, you know, I owe, you know, I owe a lot of this to, um, is Nick Raskolinik, the man you're about to talk to, because he had produced Food Fighters one by one. And then another record after that, um, God, I don't even know the name of our albums. Um, anyways, <laughs> the, the one after that, uh, in your honor, that's it. And, um, you know, Nick was the one who introduced me to Rush because he started, recording their records and um and he's the one who who like said hey you know the first time i played with the rush guys was actually up in toronto and i was on tour in 2009 i believe and and um i had met neil and getting alex through nick 
which was awesome. And, um, and, uh, so Rascal Linux called me. He's like, Hey, what do you think about playing with Alex and Getty up in Toronto when you guys come through town? I'm like, okay. And he goes, what about playing YYZ? I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> are you fucking crazy. <laughs> um, but I did. But what was it for? Was it a private thing or what was it? A jam? No, dude. No, you can go on YouTube and watch it right now. It's me trying to play YYZ with Getty and Alex. I played it really fast, too. And they hadn't been playing in a while. So when it got to the bass solo sections, Getty was like, oh, God damn it, that's fast. <laughs> I, was, I was excited, you know, but they were really sweet and gracious. And, and then I saw Neil at a show here in L.A. not long after that. And I said, dude, I'm, I pissed on your Picasso. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Like, no, no, no. You did a great job, Taylor. You did a wonderful job. So much spirit, you know, whatever. And he, he is uh, pissed so, on your Picasso. That's awesome. Oh, uh, you know, I stole that from somewhere. I, I think uh, I don't know. I don't know where I, heard, I don't know where I heard that, but you know, yeah, no. I, and he was really cool and gracious about it. And, and um, he was rad. He was he was an awesome, he was an awesome dude, man. I mean, and and they are all so awesome, and I'm so heartbroken for forgetting Alex. You know, I was at the very last show at the Forum. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it, um, it was it was it was it was sad because they knew it was over. Did you and, know? Did uh, you know that? Did you know that Neil was was this seriously ill, Taylor? You know, you know. There's, there's there's rumors going around LA always about things and you know I had heard I had heard what's up buddy how you doing? I had heard he was doing a, I just gave Pat Smear a hug folks um I had heard you know you'd hear rumors like yeah he's 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 ill or whatever but but I didn't know for sure it's like the Eddie Van Halen thing right you know? I don't totally I don't know I don't know for sure totally. but I had a pretty good feeling that. You know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I didn't realize that that's why Neil quit touring is because he knew he only had a limited amount of time left and he wanted to spend it with his kids. And after the tragedy of his early life, and we all know about that, yep. you know, and that um, his first wife and kid, uh, I, it makes a lot of sense, you know? Like, hey, I'm going to spend his last five years or whatever being a dad because, you know, we all know being parents, that's the most important thing that you can do once you have children. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and I, that's what he did. I think I think a lot of fans are trying to figure out that timeline after this news came out, whether he knew on that last tour or not, or it was just something he wanted to take family time, and then you know, a few months later he found out he was ill. I, I think that's what a lot of fans have been trying to sort of figure out, if, if the end of Rush was because of this or because he just wanted downtime and then got hit with this news. I mean, does it really matter at this point? No, not really. But I think, you know, you look back on the fan, the band was so loved. And man, when you saw that R40 tour, because I saw it in Denver, I mean, gosh, right. they were, they were, uh, I mean, that was one of the best times. That was one of the best tours they ever did production wise, oh, performance wise, stage wise. I mean, that was a band. You see some bands that are on their way out and you're like, yeah, they should be on their way out. When you when you walked out of that rush show, you're like, this band is firing on all cylinders again. Yeah, but Neil Peart will tell me, God damn, it hurts. <laughs> yeah, you know, being a drummer, being a drummer. I mean, I'm 47, 
And I'll tell you now, I got a two-year Foo Fighter schedule that's looking pretty intense. And I'm feeling my arms and my legs and my limbs, and I'm going, okay, buddies, you ready to go do two-and-a-half-hour punk rock shows at, you know, every other night for the rest for the next two years? And, uh, and that's what Neil Peart was doing, three-hour freaking slugfest. You know, there's not that much downtime in a rush set. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it is intense. I'm, I'm taking a piss on air, by the way, right now. Oh, great. That's um, – that's there you uh, go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there wasn't much downtime in a rush set. Yeah. No so, so, I mean, that was hard work. Yeah. And, you know, he had, he had issues with his hands and stuff, too. I mean, I don't know if it was that he found out the news and quietly said, you know, put the put the – drumsticks down or whatever i don't who knows we'll never really know you know i mean maybe we will doesn't really matter he's yeah. gone you know he left us with so much and um i was just lucky enough to get to know him a little bit and, but really lucky enough to get to see him play a bunch of times too i mean i saw him on the moving pictures tour i saw him on the hold your fire tour then i think i saw him a little later on one of the, like the counterparts tour or whatever one of those records, I wasn't really paying attention at that point, but you go see Rush anyways. And then later on when they came back after Neil's tragedy and he came back, I, I went, I, I saw him every time they came through town after that. Yeah. Always. I always saw him, you know, because you know, you do. Last you thing, do. man, I'll, I'll let you go. Cause I know you're about to, you're working with Foo Fighters. You're making this record and all. And uh, should remind everybody that that Taylor was just on recently with the Coattail Riders and great performance the other night on Kimmel, by the way, uh, to get the money records out there right now. But that was really great to see you out front and seeing Dave do the heavy lifting there behind the kit. <laughs> you could always do that on yeah. the Foo Fighters tour. If you guys, if you're aching in aches and pains, you guys could switch it up a little bit, I guess, give him a little bit of the load behind the drums. Well, we do sometimes, you know. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. But last once in a while. Last thing before I let you go and get back to your recording there, if somebody's listening to this show right now and they don't have never heard Rush and a song that would really, to them, symbolize everything that Neil Peart was about, what song would you tell them to listen to? Is it, is it YYZ? Um, Rush or Neil Peart? <laughs> As a drummer, Neil, is there, the, is there one thing uh, yeah. for you? I would say listen to the exit stage left version of YYZ, man. And just like, first of all, the compositions of the drum parts, but then the drum solo itself is just like, what? It's like Buddy Rich. And it's like, you know, it's like when you watch a Buddy Rich drum solo here when you're like, that's like, how is that humanly possible? Who Neil was a huge fan of, I know. He, I think he did. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he did yeah, a I couple tribute true. records. Picked a lot of, picked a lot of licks up off, off, good old buddy you know i'm sure yeah so. well listen man yeah, say man. say hi to say hi to everybody there and uh, i'll let you get back to what you got to do i really appreciate 
a few minutes here and and you coming on and sharing some thoughts about Neil because again I mean you've got something incredibly cool for the rest of your life to oh yeah go on YouTube there I am playing twenty one twelve and oh yeah that's Neil getting up behind me as I'm passing the baton to him I mean that whole moment and what you guys did was so incredibly cool and and it's so awesome to see that they finally got into the Hall of Fame which was so insanely overdue and then to have real fans like you guys uh, tribute them was incredible yeah yeah, yeah yeah well you know i'm blessed blessed for a lot of things in my life and that's one of them definitely yeah. I'll, I'll never forget it and i will never um never forget neil and he's with me every time i get up on stage every single night every single night so i mean my pale terrible impersonations as neil pert will continue sorry folks <laughs> <laughs> Hey, man, thanks for the time, all right? I'll talk to you soon. I'll see you soon. My pleasure, bro. All right, see ya. There he goes. Taylor Hawkins, everybody. My thanks to Taylor Hawkins. Much appreciated. And, uh, you know, just people still wrestling with this. Still can't believe that Neil Peart is gone. It's hard to believe when you hear from all these guys, just uh, the impact this man made. All right, we're coming back. And up next, producer Nick Raskulinitz, the man who produced the last two Rush albums to talk about Neil Peart on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. It's Eddie Trunk, and our second interview is with Nick Raskulinitz. Nick is a noted producer, worked with Foo Fighters, Hailstorm, countless artists, and also the man who was very close to Neil Peart and recorded and produced the last two Rush albums. To get some thoughts on Neil, here is producer Nick Raskulinitz. Nick, uh, wish we had you on under better circumstances, but thanks for some time today. Hey Eddie, thanks for reaching out, man. I'm I'm been looking forward to this. Yeah, well, we we were just saying off the air, we got to do something where we have you come in and just talk rock with us for a whole show because I love interviewing producers. But this is obviously um, it's been a tough weekend for you. How long have you? Obviously, you were very close with Neil. You knew he was sick for a while, but did this come to you the same way as us? Is such a big shock, or were you more prepared for it? Yeah, I mean, I you know I've known about it for quite a while and it was just a matter of you know keeping it private and kind of you know it was kind of a big secret within you know need to know basis in the camp but I think like everybody it was just as much of a shock for me as it was for everybody because it's such a you know such a final thing but you know the shock is kind of you know worn off at this point now it's just you know about kind of being sad still and just thinking about all the great memories that I got to share with him and Getty and Al was quite an quite an amazing experience i must say how did that experience start nick was snakes and arrows the first thing you worked on for them <laughs> it was and this is how it went down man i you know back in like 2006 or so i was i was online and i read that rush was gearing up to make another record and at that point i was kind of coming off you know the success with the foo fighters and you know other assorted bands and i just I called my manager and I was like, Hey, get a hold of rush rush's camp and see if they'd be interested in making a record with somebody like me. You know, I was a lot younger then and 
I just kind of had this energy and this fire about like, wow, I, you know, how amazing would it be to, from a kid from Knoxville, Tennessee, get to make a, a record with a band like Rush. And so he reached out and, you know, unfortunately they had already started moving forward with another producer. And it was just kind of like, well, okay, well I tried anyway. And then a couple months later, he called my manager, called me back and he said, guess what? Things went south with who they were making their record with and they want to meet you. So I was like, okay, I booked a flight the next day. I flew up to Toronto and Andy Curran, who you just spoke to, picked me up at the airport, you know, and we're kind of in the car talking. I wasn't really paying attention. And then all of a sudden he stops the car. He's like, there's Getty's house. So I was like, okay, well, and he was like, yeah, just call me when you're done. I was like, well, you're not coming with me. And he's like, no, go meet them. They're waiting for you. So I literally walked up to Getty's front door and knocked on the door and he answered and was like, whoa, okay, I'm hanging out with Getty Lee and me and Getty and Alex, we drank a ton of coffee and we didn't even talk about music or Rush or anything. We talked about the world and history and politics and, you know, those guys were totally just kind of feeling me out. I think they knew that I had the, you know, engineering and producing skills by my previous work, but it was more about, can we hang out with this guy? type mm-hmm. type thing and you know i then i literally left and got on the plane and flew back to la and the next day i got a call that you know neil was living in la at that point and that i needed to go meet neil and <laughs> he showed up at my house the next day pulled in my driveway my wife was like hey there's some guy with a really nice car at aston martin in our driveway i was like oh yeah that's neil peart <laughs> and we went to jerry's deli in LA over on Ventura and we had lunch and again, we didn't even talk about rush. We didn't even talk about music. We didn't talk about drums. We talked about the world and life and religion and history and all kinds of stuff. And it was great, you know, and I kind of walked away from that, like, well, all right, that was cool. And then I got the call the next day, literally from Andy Curran, who was, you know, a really great influence on kind of making the whole thing happen. And then literally a few weeks later, I found myself in the studio up in New York with those guys. That's incredible. Now, now I know even at that point, like you said, you had done the Foo Fighters and stuff, but were you still sort of fanboying out inside? I know you probably didn't show it externally, but were you kind of like, uh, right, I'm having I'm having a sandwich with Neil at uh, Jerry's Deli, and I'm having coffee with Alex and Getty. I mean, in, internally, there had to be a side of you that's just like, this is really happening? Yeah, totally. I mean, I grew up listening to Rush. Rush is, you know, I'm not going to lie, man. Rush is my all-time favorite band. I I grew up just loving Rush and loving the drums and the guitar and the bass and the whole thing. It was like a magical experience. And at that point, it was, you know, and I didn't want to go into it with a fact. Basically, I tried to hide it as much as I could. I mean, you know, they'll tell you now that they knew in the first five minutes, you know, because I'm, you know, when, when I was meeting with Getty and Al, at one point I was like, well, okay, all this coffee is awesome. And you know, the history is great, but let me hear some music. Let me hear what you guys got going on right now. Cause they were coming off that vapor trails record. And you know, I, I, I thought I had some very specific things as a rush fan that I want to hear, you know, and they Getty took me down into his little basement studio and they started playing me some of the songs that would, you know, become Armor and Sword and Spindrift and uh, some of the songs on that record. 
And I immediately was like, oh, my God, that's great, but what if? And that's really cool, but what if this happened? And what if that happened? And, you know, they did, those demos didn't have Neil on them yet. And I was just like, I had all these drum ideas. I was like, man, it'll be so cool if we get Neil to do this and we get Neil to do that. And Al, how come you're not playing a solo right there? And Getty, why are you singing so low? You know, it was like, I want to hear the high shit. I want to hear you sing like a banshee. You know, it was. <laughs> was it a drum machine like, on the demos, Nick? I Or did I someone else play drums? I was about halfway keen on them, man. It was it was like I just heard a lot of room for what I what I thought it should be. You right. know, what as a Rush fan, what I wanted out of it. And some of it was some of it was there and some of it wasn't yet. You know, and I think they really cued in on my energy about and my excitement about the potential of, you know, making a record with them. I, I honestly think that that energy is what is what made it happen. Tell me what it was like working with Neil Peart in the studio and recording his drums. Tell me what that process is like. Well, for Snake, the Snakes and Arrows record, it was, you know, we got up into the studio up in the mountains in, up in upstate New York, and we kind of all, it was a, like a residential-type studio, so we all moved in there. We were only supposed to be there for a week, and we set up the kit, and we set up everything, and we started, you know, kind of started messing around. We started recording and by the end of that first night, it was like, this is amazing up here. We got to stay up here longer. And, you know, it was like, you know, imagine sitting in the control room listening to, to Neil play and like, whoa, there's the drum set. There it is. You know, it's like levitating off the ground, you know, and glow, <laughs> glowing with delight. It was all I could do to not to not play it and stuff, which, of course, I did. And it was amazing. And I even wore Neil's hat when I was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, you know, the very first drum track we did, I, you know, he played the song a couple times. And I believe it was that song, Armor and Sword, which was the first song we recorded on that album. And he did a fill. And I, you know, and any drummer that's worked with me will tell you, I like to be in the room with the drummers. You know, I like to be in there with headphones on and I like to have a stick in my hand and I'm pacing around like a madman, you know, listening and feeling it. And I hadn't done that with Neil yet because it was, you know, Neil Peart, uh, you know, it's Neil Peart, you know. It's the professor, right. <laughs> it's the professor. It's the, it's the master. So I kind of, you know, a couple takes went by and he kept doing these things. And I was like, oh, but if he did that here and. You know, I I ran into the drum room out of the control room with my stick and, you know, I'm, I walk right up to the drum set right in front of him and he's got his head down and he's playing the track like the, he's recording the song right now. And I kind of got down low and waved in his face. I'm like, hey, hey, stop, stop, stop. And he kind of looked at me and like kind of like, what? Why are you in here with me? <laughs> and he, he stopped playing. You know, he took his headphones off and the track is still playing in the background. And I'm like, man, that fill you did right there, you know, going into the chorus. I was like, can you do that fill coming out of the chorus instead? And can you try a fill that's more like, you know, I referenced something off of Fly By Night, I think, a drum fill. And I was like, you know that, you know, fill you do on Fly By Night in this particular song? I was like, can you do something like that? And he was just like, he was a little taken aback for a second, I think. And then he was like, well, you mean something like this? And I was like, that's it. Perfect. I was like, you know, and I yell back at the engineer. I'm like, start it over, you know, start the track over. And I went back in the control room and I was walking away going, oh, my God, oh, my God, I hope I didn't blow it. I hope I didn't blow it. 
you know, and I walk in the control room and Getty is sitting in the control room and I'll never forget the look. He just like peered at me over the top of his glasses and pointed at me and he goes, you, he goes, he's going to like you kid. He's going to like you. And literally Ed, from that moment forward, it was on with me and him in the studio. I mean, we had anything that I could throw out to him, you know, he would try or he would do, or he would, he was just excited. I think that somebody in the room was excited about the drums as he was. And you maybe know, somebody, somebody, and maybe Nick, maybe the previous guys, whoever they had worked with were, were too intimidated. I mean, you know, sure. Artists want to hire producers, but sometimes they don't really want that person. To, you know, they don't want to, they're not open to the input or they, they slap you down a little bit. And it's, it's got to, it had to take a little bit of, uh, you know, stones for you to go in there and, and start telling Neil, hey, well, I want it like that or like that. So he may, I'm sure he found that pretty refreshing to be pushed a little bit. Man, I, honestly, I think he did. And it really created a relationship between us. You know, the rest of the recording of the record was just so much fun. And he, he started to ask me, you know, what do you think I should do here? And what do you think about this fill? Or should I go to this symbol? Or you know, what do you think about the drum sounds and, and, you know, just all that kind of stuff. It really, we really created this language of, of drums between us. And it was really exciting. You know, it was exciting to the point to where, you know, Neil ha- kind of has his method for the records. And yeah, you got to remember too, this was their 17th or 18th studio record at that point. And I think he was, he was looking for some input on mm. some things, you know, I know Getty and Alex give him suggestions and input, but it's different when it's coming from kind of a little more of an objective person. Sure. Outside. Outside. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, and he knew I was a drum freak immediately. And, you know, you know, look at the bands I record. There's definitely a common thread with all of them. And and that is the drummers, you know, and it kind of got to the point to where we made, when we started making clockwork angels, it was, you know, he came into the studio with nothing. He he never demoed the drums for any of the songs on that record. He came into the studio, and he <laughs> the first day of tracking, he brought me a conductor's baton, <laughs> and he says, he says "booge," which was the nickname that he gave me because I would always air drum fills. You know, digga 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 booge. You know, that was always the symbol was the booge hit. And he goes, "I will not play drums." unless you have the conductor's baton in your hand. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, conduct me. I am yours for this record. Wow. I mean, and I think about that now and it's, it's hard to even put into words what that means, you know? And we literally recorded every drum track on that record, you know, together in the drum room and wrote all the parts and just, it was just fully bouncing ideas off of each other the entire time. And the first drum track we did for that record was the song Clockwork Angels. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the very first time he played through it, he did some really amazing fills and, you know, the drum beat that is, is the Clockwork Angels part on that song. He only played that part one time and he only did it the very first time he played the song. It was all the drum tracks on that record were very off the cuff. They were very, very spontaneous and i really think you can feel that spontaneity and that energy in those drum tracks that was a couple of dudes in a great studio and just just having fun with drums 
Man, it's amazing. Real quick, because uh, I don't have a lot of time here. We'll, we'll do more somewhere down the line. But I'm wondering, I mean, everybody knows Neil was an intensely private guy. But you said he'd gotten real a lot looser around you and wanted to have fun and all that. Was any of this stuff, I know it's documented because we can hear it on the record, but were you able to put cameras? Did you shoot? Was Is there video of any of this? Um, another, you know. For whatever the reasons, and you'd have to ask those guys, but I actually videotaped both records. I have lots of video footage of us recording both of those albums, and I have I have pretty much every second of us recording the drum tracks for both of those records on tape. You know, and they knew I were do- they knew I was doing it. I was trying to be as stealth as possible. You know, right. but I was also you know laying on my back under the console, framing up a camera and all right, let's do some bass, you know, I think they knew that it was happening, but they didn't care. You know, I was, I was totally, I wasn't making a big deal about it. You know, I just kind of set the camera wherever it was and walk away and hit record. And, you know, thinking about that footage now, you know, I I don't know what's ever going to happen with it or nothing may ever or whatever, but it's, it's really, it's really special, a special thing to have at this point. And speaking of special, how insane is it that you got to be the third guy of the Rush tribute in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Um, you were you were the guy as Getty. You know, I mean, that's just yeah, that's just unbelievable. You were the guy that, no disrespect, but people watching were like, "Wait, well, who's the third guy?" <laughs> it was like, yeah, that's the producer. You know, everybody knows who Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins is, but you were the third guy in that. Uh, which you know, I, I was talking to Taylor earlier just now. I was like, just the fact to know that they're watching while you're playing. 2112 is just insane it was awesome that again that whole experience is almost dreamlike and i think about it i'm you know it's gotten to be you know six or seven years ago at this point but when it all happened it was like wow we're gonna it was all about the celebration you know it was three guys myself dave and taylor who just did it for the love of the band you know i think the rock and roll hall had some kind of lame idea of, Hey, let's just get everybody together and jam on a Zeppelin song. And, (laughs) you know, me and David Taylor were like, wait a minute, what if we dress up like rush and kind of take the piss out of the whole thing? And let's play 2112 because, you know, the first part of that first movement, because there's no singing, so we don't have to sing, right. You know, and, and, you know, being a bass player, like I am, I've played bass, you know, for a long time in bands and stuff. And, we just, we, you know, we just jumped right on it. The funny, the, the, I guess the scariest part of the whole thing, two scary parts real quick was one, I had to call Getty and Alex and Neil and convince them that it was a good idea. <laughs> Cause after the rock and roll hall was like, well, we don't know, but okay, we'll, you know, convince the band and we'll let it happen or whatever. And it turns out that, you know, I remember, I remember those three guys when we were all backstage kind of before it happened and they were all just so excited and they were so stoked about it because it wasn't going to be some kind of stuffy, you know, all-star jam thing. It was like, you know, we, we were kind of making fun of it in a way. You well, know, and, and anybody that knows anything about them, and I've, I've been lucky enough to know Getty and Alex for a really long time and met Neil the one time, but they, they that's the biggest misconception about Rush is that they're probably very stuffy, very, you know, very, not very serious people. They, they've got great senses of humor, so they would love something like that. The most serious those, those guys are, in my opinion, is when they're on stage together. Yeah. Otherwise, it is a laugh fest man i mean some of my best memories of hanging out with the three of them especially you know and, and with neil is the laughing 
the laughter. I mean, Alex would get Neil laughing so hard, Neil would have to leave the room. His face would turn bright red and he'd be tears streaming down his face because he was, you know, and he would always, stop, 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 yeah. works. You're the funniest man I know. Yeah. You know. Hey, Nick, I don't mean to cut you off, but I have to because I've got to hit a commercial break and I've actually got to wrap up my show soon. But we need to do more. I want to, I want to have you in to do a whole show with you one of these days. So I'll text you and we'll have to sort that out. But I really appreciate you giving us some insights on what it was like to, to work with Rush so directly. And, and my condolences, man, because I know you're close to the guys. Thanks, Eddie. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. I, I love sharing the stories, and you know, it, it's cool stuff for for the Rush fans, you know, who might not know some of this stuff to to get a little piece of. And you know, everybody everybody feels like Rush is their band, you yeah. know, and and I, I do too. So, yeah. All right, man. Well, listen, uh, I'll be in touch with you, and we'll sort something out soon, and we'll we'll do a whole show together talking about all kinds of good stuff. Thanks for the time, awesome, Nick. Indeed. I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot, man. Well, my thanks to Nick and also thanks earlier to Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters for some thoughts on the late, great Neil Peart. Remember, next week's podcast, two more interviews from this same radio show, uh, Mike Portnoy and Andy Curran, who works for the Rush organization. They will join me next week as we'll do another week of remembering Neil Peart here on the podcast. Remember, the interviews you hear on this podcast all originate on my SiriusXM show. Volume is the channel. 106 is the number. And I'm live every day, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. I'm replaying 10 to midnight Eastern. I hope you join me if you're in the U.S. and Canada for the, the uh, broadcast every day and get involved in the show and listen live when we do it here on the podcast. You're getting a little, little sample. But you'll get those interviews next week with Portnoy and Andy Curran. More on Neil Peart as we continue a two-week tribute here on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Remember, connect with me on Twitter at Eddie Trunk. Instagram at Eddie Trunk, fan page, Facebook at Eddie Trunk. EddieTrunk.com is the official online home. If you're in Thornburg, Virginia, I will see you this weekend. And I'll see you on Sunday, as a matter of fact, with Firehouse. That information is on the website, my homepage there. So be sure to check it out. You guys have yourselves a great week. And thanks for listening. Katie Irizarry puts it all together. And I'll talk to you next Thursday for another new episode and part two of the Neil Peart Tribute. Time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.